As you're being seated, if you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We will be looking at verses 14 through 20 today. We'll be looking at the institution of the Lord's Supper on the day in which we take the Lord's Supper. It's wonderful how the Lord uses expository preaching, working verse by verse through a passage to bring us exactly what we need when we need it. So again, we'll be in Luke chapter 22. I'll begin in verse 14 and read through verse 20. Listen carefully, because this is God's word for you, Nolwood, today. Verse 14. And when the hour came, he, that is Jesus, reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not eat. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached to you. Let's pray as we contemplate this text before us. Our Lord Jesus, today we have the opportunity to do this in remembrance of you. That this text, we ask that you would bless it so that we could see wonderful things out of your word today. ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've all had those moments that we have waited for, for many years. Maybe the moment that you were thinking about was the time in which you finally got to walk across the stage graduating from high school or college, representing years of work, finally culminating in a service that recognizes all the effort that you've put in all these long years. Or maybe it was when you got to stand at the altar on your wedding day. Something that I remember months and months of planning during this engagement season. And finally the hour comes when she walks through the back of the door. Maybe you felt it when your first child was finally born. All those months of hard labor, heartburn, and sleeplessness leads to more heartburn, labor, and sleeplessness. But it was a good moment, at least when it started. Or maybe it was the moment when you finally closed the office door for the last time, ending 40-some years of work in the workplace to begin a life of retirement. Whatever that moment was for you, I want you to think back to the five minutes before that moment was finally here. Feel that gravity in your chest again as you're yearning to embrace the moment that's in front of you that you've been waiting all these long years for. 
That's where Jesus is in our text today. It's not often that we get to see the culmination of something. But this is what we see here. All through the Gospel of John, there's made reference to Jesus' hour that had not yet come. In John chapter 2 at the wedding of Canaan, when Mary comes to him and says, they've run out of wine. and want him to do something about it. And he says, my hour's not yet come. Or in John chapter 7, when they invite him to go to one of the feasts of Jerusalem, he says, my hour is not yet come. Or John chapter 8, when they try to arrest Jesus, but they're unable to because the hour has not yet come. But here, in verse 14, the hour has come. This is it. It's the pivotal moment in redemption history. What the Bible's been building up to, here it is. This hour. And how does Jesus feel about it? We get a sneak peek, peel back the layer, and see the emotions of Christ. It says in verse 15, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. The words that he uses here is a Hebraism that I have desired to desire. This is something he's been looking forward to for a long time, to have this Passover. So if Jesus is so joyously determined to get to this moment, if Jesus is excited for what's about to happen, then I would think we should be earnestly desirous to find out why. He's so excited to be here. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to find out why Jesus has been looking forward to this Passover in particular as we see our two points today. The first one is that at great personal cost, Jesus makes a profound promise of peace. And then the second is that Jesus gives a picture of this promise. And if I might add to it, for us to remember. That's what we're going to see today. So let's look at this critical section of Scripture. Most of us, when we think about this, the Last Supper, as it's been known, we think of the famous painting by da Vinci. All the disciples on one side of the table in various configurations with Jesus at the center. This is something that has been painted hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but we all immediately have it in our minds but it's not entirely clear as to what's, who's who in this painting. I re-looked it up in preparation for this sermon, and I only got one of the disciples correct. All the other ones I misidentified. Saw one of them with a sword behind his back and thought, ah, that must be Judas. But it turned out it was Peter. Judas had a little bag of money that I had missed. He didn't have a halo either, which should have tipped me off. But anyway, my art critiquing abilities aside, the painting with da Vinci... Oftentimes, he didn't provide an explanation to the side of it when he painted this picture. He just assumes that we would know. Unlike the painting, Jesus explains every element of this picture that he paints for us. It's a profound picture that's so simple at the same time. Bread and wine. What could be simpler? Every culture across the planet has a bread of some kind and has a wine of some kind. This is something that transcends its local cuisine. 
And it makes a perfect picture of what Jesus is trying to illustrate. In fact, I tried to come up with another illustration to help us see this meal, and I couldn't think of anything that would fit quite as well as the picture that he paints for us, especially because of the history that this is grounded in, the Passover itself. This is a meal that by the time we get to it in verses 14 or 15, has been celebrated, or should have been at least, around 2,000 times since it was originally instituted in Exodus 12. This was supposed to be an annual reminder, an anniversary date of what God did for his people in Egypt. This meal would take place and done in the same way every year. And it was done with four different elements, four different cups of wine that were served across the meal. The first would be a cup of blessing, where when the father of the house would pick up the cup, he would say a blessing over his family, which would be followed by eating bitter herbs, which were supposed to be a reminder of the hardship of slavery. A second cup of wine would be offered And then the youngest son of the family was supposed to ask his father, why are we celebrating the meal in this way? And he would lay out the story of Exodus, a lot the same way when we gather around a Christmas tree and read the Christmas story. It's a reminder of what God has done, of passing on to the next generation the faithfulness, the story of God. And after this, they would eat the unleavened bread. They didn't have bread that would have no rise to it because there was no time for the wait for their bread to rise because they left in such a hurry in that night. Finally, there would be two more cups of wine that were consumed after they ate the main Passover meal of the lamb and the vegetables. And with these two more cups of wine, they would end with some psalms praising the Lord for his faithfulness. That's how Passover was celebrated. Again and again and again. 2,000 some times in this exact way. With this exact meaning. Until here. Now Passover is different. Jesus is going to take Passover and turn it into something else. Turn it into something that really the Passover has been pointing to. A salvation that God was going to bring. Here, Jesus is saying he's earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. We'll come back to that. But he says, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, there's some debate as to what the until means, whether it means that Jesus is going to resume eating Passover in the kingdom, whether the the meal is going to make a comeback and we'll celebrate Passover again. Or it could mean that he is saying that that sometimes Hebrews use the word until to mean this isn't going to happen. There's an example that one commentator pointed out in 1 Samuel, where Samuel tells the king, you're not going to see me until the day of my death means he's not going to see him again. I think it's this second sense that's meant here. Because the Passover is going to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's going, the Passover has been pointing to something. And that will be fulfilled. And I think that fulfillment is going to come at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Which we can read about, if you'll turn with me. 
to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I think that's what we're referring to. What Passover is ultimately going to point to. It's a celebratory meal of victory that we'll see fulfilled in Revelation 19. But before we get to celebration, before we get to victory, there's going to be pain. Lot. That's what verse 15 is talking about here. Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Yes, there are good sweet times in this meal, but there is an ominous cloud that's hovering over it. There are the apostles sitting at the table, one of whom is Judas. The money bag clanging at his feet, the blood price for the Savior. All of the disciples that are sitting around with him, joining him for for the meal, are going to abandon him when it comes time to fulfill it. Jesus is only hours away from beatings, scourgings, and eventual crucifixion. This is the suffering that he's referring to. He's going to face the wrath of Almighty God. That's the promise that he's making here. That there's going to be atonement. There's going to be peace. He's going to illustrate that in this meal. This is going to be thanks to the new covenant that he mentions. Which is how we're, which what we're going to explore as we look into our second point. That Jesus gives us a picture of this promise. Look with me at verse 17. This could be getting a little confusing. You may notice when I do the Lord's Supper, I only mention one cup. But here Jesus seems to be mentioning two. In verse 17, he says he takes a cup and gives thanks and divides it among themselves. And then we skip down into verse 20 and he takes another cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What's going on here? There are some that thought that perhaps that this verse was a mistake. Maybe some overzealous scribe accidentally put in two cups instead of the one. But that's not what's happened here. The word of God is preserved for us, so we should ask why this is the case. That's why we went over what the Passover was like. There were four cups with that Passover. Well, we don't know which one was these first ones. It was either the first or the second one, because he mentions after they eat, then he takes another cup. As Phil Riken, I think, said it best, is that this first cup that we see in verse 17 is the last cup of Passover. And that when we get to... The second cup mentioned in verse 20 is the first cup of the Lord's Supper. We see the Passover morphing right in front of us to become something new. That's why when we go on and we get to verse 19, we'll see him transform these elements. Notice what he says here in verse 19. He said he takes bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. We're very familiar with these words. Likely, if you've grown up in church, you've heard them said many, many times. And I think because of that, unless we're 
very mindful and thoughtful about that. We forget what an amazing thing that is. You see, Jesus, Son of God, existed before he became human, before he took on a human nature. He was at one time enthroned next to his Father, living in perfect peace and harmony, served in heaven. And he voluntarily chose to become one of us, living under the curse of the law, living with our weaknesses, our limitations, experiencing fatigue, pain, hunger, thirst, fear, anxiety, betrayal. This is a body that he took up, though all it was meant to do was suffer. To be broken. To feel those nerves lit up for us. And that word, this is the body which is given for you. One of the commentators that I read had a wonderful illustrative story. This came from the Civil War. A farmer was kneeling next to a gravestone. It was on the field. And a passerby walked past and saw him kneeling there and asked if this was his son that had fought in the war for him. He said, no, it wasn't. He didn't have any sons that were old enough to serve in the Civil War at the time. He himself was just a poor farmer. That barely enough to get his wife and two small children by. And while he was willing to join the conflict for the Civil War, if he was to lose his life, which would have been likely, his family would have been left destitute. So, a neighbor's son came over and volunteered to be in his place to go to the war for him, to spare his family. And, of course, he ended up losing his life in that conflict. After the farmer explained all of this, he stood back up and walked back to his farm. And the passerby noticed what he wrote on the marker. And it said, he died for me. That's the picture. His body is given for you, not just in terms of blessing. It is that given for you in terms of nourishment, in terms of spiritual health, in terms of transformation. It's true. But this body has also been given for you in that it was meant to be in your place. We were the ones who were supposed to experience the wrath of Almighty God. We were the ones that committed all of this sin, and we were the ones who should have felt it in our bodies. But He died for us. So your body won't have to absorb the wrath of God for all of eternity. Your body gets to be free. It gets to be raised incorruptible and sit at that marriage supper of the Lamb we saw in Revelation 19. Christ gave himself for you, staying in your grave. That's what this image is supposed to be. We break this bread, we're to imagine his body broken and given for us. But the image continues, and it becomes even more profound if that can be possible. 
He then picks up the cup and said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, what's a covenant? Covenant, as Riken defined so well, it says a covenant is a bond in blood, a solemn commitment that God will keep his promise to the very death. We don't have something like that that's as binding in our culture. The closest we have is a contract that you sign with ink. But as we all know, contracts can be broken with a, with a talented enough lawyer or a large enough price. That's not the case with covenants. In biblical times, when you made a promise, when you made a covenant, this was the most serious promise that you could make. One of the things that you would do is you would take an animal and you'd split it in half, let all the blood flow out. And both parties were to walk between this split animal, taking an oath before God, saying, if I break this covenant, may God do to me what we've done to this animal. In order to break this covenant would mean you would have to die. And every covenant that you see that's made in Scripture is sealed with this blood. We can see this in Exodus chapter 24 when Moses makes the covenant between God and his people, or at least mediates that covenant, starting in verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the blood of the, covenant, the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Something has to die to make a covenant like that. It's a lot of blood. It's a lot of sacrifice. But hear what Jesus does with it. Here he's talking about a new covenant that's going to be made, which we saw in Jeremiah 31. The promise of this new covenant, the law would be written on their hearts. You wouldn't have to say, know the Lord, because they would know him. Because the Spirit would live inside their hearts. This is a tremendous promise that would never go away. How do you seal a promise like that? That your iniquities can be forgiven. All of your sin can be put away with. How is that done? Well, Jesus says, this is the new covenant. And I could imagine the disciples, if, they, if we could grant them a level of thoughtfulness that they've not displayed thus far. If they could say, okay, a new covenant's coming. Where are the oxen? Where's the lamb? What are we going to split apart in order to make this covenant? And he holds up the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I am going to be split open. 
I am going to die to seal this covenant with you. My blood, which is poured out on our behalf. The son of God would give his own blood to guarantee this covenant. Do you struggle with assurance? Do you struggle knowing that your sins are really forgiven? This passage should give you a lot of comfort. Jesus pours out his blood so that your sins could be forgiven. Christ's blood is not going to fail. As it says in Hebrews, if a ram could work for the covering of sins, how much more could the blood of the Son of God cover for your iniquities? God is never going to go back on his own blood oath. This is secure. That's the picture illustrated with bread and wine, a body that is broken and blood that's poured out. Simple, simple enough that a child can grasp it, but profound enough that we could spend the rest of our lives looking at its depth. So what's our takeaway? What do we take from this passage today? This supper that we have here is a picture of the gospel that we can eat and be nourished by. We are not left to guess what this supper means. We are not left to wonder if God will keep his promise because we are reminded of it every time we gather. Instead, we are to look with amazement as we come to this table. And the way to this table is to accept the terms of its covenant. What are those terms? Turn from your sin. Lay down your life. Give it to Christ. Pledge the rest of your existence to be loyal to him as your king. And he will give you what you need. He will give you the spotless record that's required to come to this table. He'll give it through Christ. He gives it freely. So take it. Leave behind your sins and come to this table and feast with our God. If you've already done that, then be the path for someone else to come to this table. As Abigail Dodds once put it, be the fork in the road for someone. Help someone else to get to a decision point. To see that they need Jesus. Bring them to the presence of Christ at his table. I close with the words of Philip Ryken. He says, Jesus died for you as much as he died for the disciples. And he loves you as much as he loves them. It is to you that this bread is given. To you, this cup is poured because it was for you that his body was broken and for you that his blood was shed. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer.
Oh, Lord, we come to you ready to receive the blessing of this table and all that it represents with the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be mindful of this, that we would not forget the meaning of this supper, but that we would embrace it wholeheartedly, that we would come to this table joyously, remembering what you have done for us. Oh, I ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.